Robin Honecky, what is your favourite game? My favourite game is Katamari Damacy. Well, when I was younger, um, games were just starting to become popular in the United States. So my parents got us, I think, a Super Nintendo was the first uh, console that I had at home. But when I was much younger, like when I was probably seven or eight, I had a neighbor that had uh, a very old ColecoVision. And I got to go over to her house and play it. And I can remember playing like Pitfall and some other games. And she was really good at games because she got to practice and I was really bad. <laughs> so it would be like, you can go for a turn, and then when you die, I'll get to go. So I'd go, and I'd die right away, and then she'd go, and she'd go for a really long time. <laughs> the whole time I'd be sitting there, like, rabid, waiting to get the controller. <laughs> and I'd get it and immediately, like, fall into a pit or get bitten by a snake or something and die. So um, my very first experience with playing games was just that I really wanted to be able to play them for more than a fleeting second at a, you know, like at the pizza place or at my friend's place. Um, and being able to play, you know, Zelda and then Mortal Kombat against my brother or Tetris against my mom, you know, that kind of thing. Once we finally got a console in the house was just like, was the best thing ever. Like it didn't have to keep waiting all the time (laughs) and I actually got to be able to get kind of good at it. But, um, the thing I remember most is actually in about seventh grade, um, I had a friend whose brother had a um, Commodore 64. So it was like a computer that played games. It wasn't just a console on your TV. And uh, I played Mule there at their house for the first time. And I just got totally sucked into it. I was just obsessed with the idea of playing it. Because you could play with each other, but then against the machine. And the machine was kind of part of the game. And then you'd be sitting next to each other trying to kind of figure out who's going to go for what and who's going to get the best deal at the store. And it it was just amazing to me that you could play the game, but also play against your friend at the same time. This was just, it was, I was, I couldn't stop thinking about it. Um, And I think in many ways, a lot of the games I've worked on since then have been influenced by that feeling of being able to play together, but also compete, you know, with the machine and each other. It just sort of softens the competition a little bit, which is nice. It's just that human nature, basically. Yeah, I mean, you know, you always want to win, right? <laughs> got the, the the console into the home for the first time, like the mm-hmm. Super Nintendo. Like, what were those kind of first games? Like, Z- you mentioned Zelda as well. Yeah, yeah. Zelda. Yeah, we played a lot of Zelda and Tetris. My mom actually wasn't really a fan of video games, um, but my brother, uh, we had a we had a hamster um, named Fluffy, I believe. It was Fudge, actually. It was called Fudge because it was brown, and it was Fluffy, but it was named Fudge. And uh, she would go into Brian's room pretending to feed the hamster, but then she would play Tetris. <laughs> she'd turn it on and play it, and you'd, you'd come home from school, and she'd be in there kind of stooped over the controls, staring at the screen, and she'd be like, oh, I'm sorry, I just came in here to feed fudge. <laughs> and it turned out, she confessed later that she was dreaming about Tetris. So um, it was actually a huge influence uh, in the family because it was the first time you know, a, you know, an adult was actually kind of hooked on a video game. Oh, 
Boston, basically. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh dear. Uh, <laughs> um, further down the line, then, like after um, after the kind of Super Nintendo period, like how did your kind of um, games kind of life uh, grow up, so to speak? Well, so when I was in high school, I got really interested in art and uh, making things. The consoles were sort of older, you know, they seemed like for kids, kind of. And the PlayStation hadn't come out yet, so I wasn't really playing a lot of computers that often. But then when I went to college, uh, which would have been like uh, 1991, I, uh, I started working in a computer lab at school. And in the computer lab, they had these really fancy Macintosh computers. And on the fancy Macintosh computers, they had an Asteroids clone, and then they also had SimCity 2000. And so I started playing SimCity 2000 at work, <laughs> working, working at the computer lab. Don't tell anybody, but I played it constantly. <laughs> and I wasn't really good at Asteroids. I've never been very good at, like, uh, Twitch games and, like, platformers and stuff where you have to do a lot of, you know, heavy sort of controls of how you jump or how you move, especially the 3D sort of movement or, you know, the, the, the thrusting-type movement, shit movement in space games has never been really that easy for me for some reason. But I loved SimCity, and I played it constantly and got really obsessed with it. And then I had some friends in Chicago that had a little company called Bungie and they were making games too. They were making a game called Myth and they'd made a couple of other games. And so I started kind of hanging out with people that made video games. Um, my friend did a video game and we did, I did some screams for the game. <laughs> got really interested in sort of video games as a, as a practice and that slowly and surely led me into studying them in school and then eventually getting recruited to go work in video games. So I guess we can just blame my first job <laughs> for the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> which, which would tie in nicely to how you first got on the industry side of things. Then. Yeah. Yeah. So I was, actually, um, I was actually in graduate school for a long time. I stayed in school after college and started studying robots and AI and became really interested in the idea of you know, programs and machines that can tell stories or talk back to you or interact with you in a way that's more uh, sort of human. And through that work, I started working in the source engine, simulating behaviors of robots using the little bots in a game of Half-Life on Half-Life maps. And I was actually going around talking about that work in like 2003 and 2004. I was going to conferences and sort of talking about my work and getting ready to finish my PhD and try and figure out what I was going to do for a living when I ran into uh, Will Wright, who was also interested in robots and AI at a conference at Stanford. And he was talking about The Sims, which he had just finished and was talking about getting ready to make The Sims 2. Uh, and uh, I was just blown away. I was like, wow, this is even better than SimCity. How can this possibly be? Um, and afterwards, Pepper him with questions, kind of, you know, after his talk, he was like, you sound like a game designer. So <laughs> that sort of put the idea in my head, like, hmm, maybe I should consider that instead of just going off into the ivory tower of the academy and studying games, maybe I could actually make them. And about uh, about a year later, I ended up going to work on The Sims 2, on the expansion pack team. Well, we had someone on earlier in the season basically talking about The Sims 2 and the yes. expansions, so you'll have to check that out. Yeah.
Let's get into your favorite game then, Katamari Damase. Um, so, at PlayStation Experience last year, you uh, when you announced Watam, which we'll mm-hmm. get into later on, um, you'd mentioned how you first got into uh, Katamari uh, when the sim- when you were working on The Sims. So, like, but how did you first kind of hear of the game initially? You know, I was really interested in uh, Japanese games when I was uh, in grad school, and I I was obsessed with. Um, DS games in particular. I really love to buy um, sort of obscure Japanese DS games, um, rhythm games, and games that you wouldn't be able to get in the States. So I was already kind of reading a lot of Japanese game magazines and kind of, you know, perusing online, trying to find tips and stuff about what kinds of games to buy. And there were a couple stores. There was one in LA that I used to go to sometimes to buy Japanese games. Um, And I also started going to Tokyo Game Show um, to sort of check out the games over there, which at the time it wasn't very often for them to be released in the States. And through getting ready to go to TGS, I think it was in 2003 maybe, um, I came across an article about Katamari in 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 a magazine, you know, and it just showed a picture of the prince rolling up the ball. And I think at the time, it translated as kind of dung beetle game. <laughs> and I saw it and I was like, well, I don't know what this is, but it looks amazing. And so then I went to TGS and my friend and I were kind of combing the floor looking for it. We weren't really sure what publisher it was, you know, because we weren't that together. And then she found it over in the Namco booth. And so she was like, I found it, I found it. So I went over to look at it. And uh, it was just one TV with the controller uh, sort of stuck in a wall in the back corner of the Namco booth. And we played it. And the demo was just totally crazy. And we loved it. And so uh, we got his card. And then through some friends at the Game Developers Conference, reached out and brought Kata over to talk about Katamari at the Experimental Gameplay Workshop, which is a session I host there every year. And so he came over and he had this super long, like, Beatles hair and gave this crazy presentation about the game, which was amazing. It it, it was already cool that he was making a game about rolling stuff up, but then at the end of the demo, he sort of broke away from the main gameplay loop and showed the last screen of the game, which is the one where you roll up all the people of the planet Earth by rolling up all the countries. And he sort of gave this really beautiful speech about how after September 11th, he was really bummed out because he felt like people were just not understanding each other or appreciating each other. And that, you know, it was really sad to think that we all live on the same ball, but somehow we seem to think of each other as different, different enough to have wars and kill each other and stuff. And that, you know, he wanted to make a game that celebrated how everything was all part of the same thing. Mm. And it was just, I mean, I don't know if there was a dry in there. I certainly was like, oh, this guy's amazing. <laughs> ah, games about peace and love. That seems great. <laughs> so after that, I was just totally a fan. And I think that was the, that moment was just like, I was already kind of a fan. But then I was just like the world's biggest Katamari fan. And he actually gave me his business card on that trip. Um, he didn't speak a lot of English, but um, he I think he could tell that I was just totally enamored with the game. So he gave me this business card and it had a little picture of the prince like rolling a ball across the card. And I think I still have it somewhere. <laughs> it's like I was just like so blown away. Like, this is the coolest thing ever. <laughs> just kind of sw- uh, swooning, so to speak. Totally swooning, yeah. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> um, you mentioned that kind of um, obscure passion for Japanese games. Like, what what Japanese games, 
like those kind of obscure Japanese games were you into at that time well, besides Katamari? Well, so I was really into things like Mr. Mosquito and Incredible Crisis. Um, I, I liked, you know, to like the PlayStation games that came out from overseas that were just super bonkers. There was actually, I think Mr. Mosquito was published as part of um, Eidos had a fresh games label where they were publishing really weird independent Japanese games. Um, and it wasn't just Japanese games. I was actually just really interested in novel experimental game designs that weren't in the mainstream. At that time, if you went into a GameStop or whatever, you would probably see a lot of sports titles on the wall and maybe a couple of shooters and maybe some magic-based titles. But then when you went into the cut bins, you'd find like Dog's Life or... Um, disaster report which like was a really cool idea about surviving this island that was basically just being destroyed by a series of earthquakes um they were never really that well made like disaster report i think runs at about four frames a second when there's there's an earthquake happening so it's not really the best game but um but i was in love with the ideas of these designs and at the time because i was just a very young designer i really wanted to experience people that were taking risks and really trying to push in a strange direction away from the mainstream and honestly even you know back then even by 2003 or 2004 when you know kata was at EGW or when he finally won the design award the following year after releasing katamari you know different games weren't really that popular uh the Experimental Gameplay Workshop was the place that debuted Portal and, you know, uh, Guitar Heroes, uh, you know, alternative controls. Um, people weren't making music games. People weren't making, you know, rhythm games. People weren't doing this in the mainstream. They were still considered really bizarre. Obviously, I would like to say, I would like to think that a lot of people know what kind of, what Katamari kind of stands for, but... For those who have somehow yet to play it, like <laughs> kind of give the elevator pitch for uh, Damase. The story of Katamari is that there is the king of all cosmos who's kind of a jerk. He goes out drinking and carousing one night and then gets in his space Cadillac and drives across the universe and knocking down all these stars and planets out of the sky. So it's kind of a disaster because there's no stars in the sky. And then he's all sad when he wakes up in the morning and he says to his kid, the prince, who's this little tiny dude, hey, you got to go basically fix this mistake. Like, I need you to go back and roll up all the stuff and put the stars back in the sky. So the prince ends up on planet Earth and he's super tiny. He's like the size of maybe a thumbtack. And his job is to roll stuff up. So you wake up in a little area um, after you do the tutorial, which seems to be a world filled with giant things. So it's like there's a tack or a big coin or like a cookie that seems gigantic. It's about the same size as you. It sticks to this little ball that you're rolling and makes the ball bigger. Um, And over time, after you've rolled up a certain number of objects, suddenly your worldview changes and you zoom out a level and your ball is now smaller on screen again. And everything else is a little bit smaller too. So you can roll up bigger things. And so the game is essentially, it's a physical puzzle game in which you roll the ball around trying to hit like-sized objects so that you can expand your own size and then absorb larger items. And the really sort of delicious thing about the game is that you start off in this little environment and you can't really tell where you are. And as the camera zooms out and you get bigger and you roll up more and more objects, you realize you're in a kid's bedroom. 
and then you roll outside the bedroom into the lawn outside the kid's house and you're rolling up like lawn gnomes and lawn toys and sprinkler and stuff like that. And then eventually you escape the yard and you can roll into the town. And so you can roll along the street and pick up street cones and small cats and stuff like that. <laughs> and eventually you get big enough that you can actually roll up the cars and the people in the town. And um, the joy of the game is that every object you roll up has a little description um, it's cataloged in the game and the sounds that the objects make and the way that they physically impact the ball as you roll all create this really interesting perspective on the objects themselves. So it's like you're discovering all these objects for the first time. And of course, it is a Japanese game and it was influenced by you know where Katie grew up and the culture that he grew up in so all the objects are like kind of familiar like oh that's a cookie but then the label on the cookie is in Japanese and like the type of cookie it is it's like a sesame cookie or whatever it's not the kind of cookie you would get if you were say in the states or in the UK and so it's just really nice because it's like you're exploring someone else's childhood and their life from the perspective of being this little tiny person and then getting bigger over time and I think the game itself is kind of a metaphor for being small and getting bigger. And one of the things Kate said to me at some point years later when we were talking about it was just like, it's so sad how quickly you go from being small to being big. Um, we get big and then we forget what it's like when we were small. We forget what it's like to see the world from that vantage point, but also from that layer of innocence and inexperience, you know, and I think a lot of the things that are disturbing about the world, like including the war that Kate was talking about at that time, um, come from that loss of perspective. So in a way, the, the game itself is a metaphor for sort of staying in touch with the more innocent part of you that remembers that everything is really joyful and it all has a reason to be that's, you know, interesting and cool and new, you know, not to be so jaded. Hmm. Um, I think it's obvious from what you've been saying that and I should have mentioned um, at the forefront, I should have probably mentioned this earlier, like, Katamari Damase never got a UK release. It got a Japanese and US release. That's but, sad. <laughs> but it never got a UK release. We had, we've had we had all the games since, and I've been playing Katamari forever on the PS3 as a kind of baseline, so yeah. to speak, but I've not played Damase, so it's a shame. But I think even then, you could take away from uh, it that Damase is a very happy, go lucky game by nature. There's not a lot of them uh, kind of games around these days. A decade no. old from its release. Well, I think that um, it's it is happy go lucky in one sense, in that it is a joyful physical experience. Um, when Kata made it, I think he he actually just wanted it to be about rolling things up. He did, wasn't even really that excited about adding a timer. There is a timer, and there are explicit goals in the game, and you have to roll up a certain number of objects in a certain period of time, which which has a certain kind of gamefulness to it. But there's also a real, there's a nice feeling of just being able to roll. And um, he really liked that. I think that that feeling of physical interaction and just being able to, to play with physical toys is something that he's really well known for in all of his work. And it's one of the things that really shines in the work is that this sort of childhood feeling of just playfulness. But there is also an edge to the story um there's a meta narrative about a kid who's seeing the prince and the king of all cosmos kind of in these weird situations around town like and his dad's an astronaut who's gone into space and the kid's waiting for the guy to come home and it's kind of 
there's a meta narrative about family and curiosity and being a kid that um, is interesting as well. And then there's just the story of the king and the prince. Like the king of all cosmos is the prince's dad, but he's not very nice to the prince. He's kind of a jerk. And like, in a way, all the adults in the story are kind of jerks. In Katamari, when you're rolling around, there's a level um, that's towards the end. It's a city. And you start off kind of in the main part of the city. And you're about the size of a car. So you can roll up the cars and the people right away. Um, You actually start out in a park. um, And you roll up um, all of the people in the park and the carousel, the, the guy that's selling ice cream and like all that stuff. And then you move into the main area of the town and you can roll up some of the lower sort of buildings. Like there's like a, a gas station you can roll up and some other stuff. And then as you move further out, you can roll out into the harbor and roll up some of the ships and boats that are in the harbor. And then you roll back into town and you roll up the office buildings. Um, and one of the things that's really funny is that when you roll up the people if you roll up kids, they laugh. They go, ha, 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 And then when you roll up teenagers, which are, <laughs> they're like kind of adult-sized people, but they have this crazy hair. Um, they go, like, which I don't know why they do that, but that's what they do. But then when you roll up adults, they scream. And they're just like upset. <laughs> like they freak out. <laughs> they're really not happy about it. And when you roll up an office building, there's this sound, which is, simultaneously the sound of people screaming and fax machines going off all at the same time. It's like phones ringing and people screaming. and You can almost hear, you know, copiers copying and paper shuffling. Like, it's just such a funny sound. Um, and I think there are these edges in the game itself that they're just kind of like a mid, sort of a big middle finger to, <laughs> to sort of adult culture and adult seriousness and being a grown up, you know, um, which really always made me laugh. And actually, right now, there's someone who has a Twitter account where they're tweeting one by one every object description in Katamari as they roll them up. And they're just really funny. Like, the translated object descriptions are just really silly. Like, you know, they they take the piss out of just about everything. And it's it's funny because in the in the Sims it's a similar thing the cat the catalog if you look at the furniture catalog and you you read the descriptions of some of the stuff it's it's really it's quite dark at times so it is a happy go lucky game but I think underneath that there is a lot of the sort of frustration that you know Kata feels and probably you know is this is a thing it's a shared thing that I also feel that when we get older we our priorities change and we get a little bit obsessed with the wrong things mm, like like like. A- you said earlier, it's that kind of loss of innocence, so to speak. Yeah. Katamari as well, it's it's bright. It's colorful. It's, mm-hmm. it's beautiful. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, what else can you say about that? I mean, it, it is just basically that. It's wonderfully colorful. I mean, like, compared to, like, games today, like, the, basically the color palette for any game today is basically brown and brown and br- basically brown. Or it's blue and orange. That's uh, or a very popular one. Yes. <laughs> Um, you don't really see games that often that are so colourful, like compared to you know Katamari. Even today, if you see a game like that is so colourful, like its chances are it's probably going to be used in a kind of war torn setting or a zombie apocalypse or something like yeah. that. There, but with Katamari, it just uses it uses that kind of vividness to its advantage in the best possible way. Yeah, I mean, I think colour is is um, very helpful, especially in a game like Katamari where there's low poly requirements. Like in order to be able to get all the objects built so that they could 
get them all into the engine and roll them all up in these physical ways. Like it took a long time. It was actually quite an engineering challenge for them. There's a level of detail system that calls out old objects as you get bigger um, and makes them inactive and stuff. And they had to go with a low poly style and to execute that style well, color was necessary. But also Kate is just really, he's just got a really great eye. His, 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 his eye sees color. Like he'll always wear like orange shoes and, you know, he's just, he just, he picks things that are bright and colorful or have really interesting shapes because he's a sculptor and an artist by training, you know? So I think he just really loves color. For uh, Damasé, like what's the weird and the wonderful that sticks out for you? I think a huge part of it was actually the soundtrack. Um, the music of the game was at times very poignant and other times very silly. Um, the opening credits are just out of control. It's like, you know, you hear this, you know, and then da 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 it's just like super like crazy lounge singing and then there's this rainbow comes out and then the king of all cosmos comes out and then there's ducks and cows singing and giraffes and it's just crazy like it's so over the top like so much color and so silly all at once and then with this really like ridiculous name you know just like what is this like where did it come from it's so bombastic and it doesn't take itself seriously at all um and so for me that opening sequence like it's probably one of the only games where i would boot it up and i would sit through the whole thing every time <laughs> i just you know what fine like we're just gonna go on that trip again because <laughs> it's so crazy yeah just um, just sit down there and just go right I'm, yeah I'm, I'm surrounding myself this this is just yeah this is yeah I'm going to be in this place, you know, um, and I, it's not very often that, you know, someone can just take you from wherever you are sitting down on your couch to like that place so fast. It's like zero to silly in like one second. <laughs> and that, that really did stand out. Like even something like Parappa, which I also really, really love. Um, it doesn't go that far. Like it's, it's kind of cool. You know, it's like a cool game. Like Matsuro's cool. Um, but like Keda, I don't know. He was just like, all right, we're going there. Like pedal to the metal as crazy as we can get, let's just break all the conventions. Let's just do whatever nobody would expect. And, um, you know, I have to say, after working with him for a while, that's true to his nature. <laughs> um, like, as, as someone who, who is working with him now, like, like how do you see uh, Keita as a creator? I think he's extremely honest, and I think he's really, really sincere, you know. Um, he, he will tell you what he thinks. And he really does want to do exactly what he's doing. Like, I think sometimes when you read interviews with game developers, it seems like, you know, maybe they want to kind of be famous or, you know, be Hollywood or, you know, they want to like, they want to like get known for like some sort of technical accomplishment or like be the, you know, the best at playing this kind of game. Like, you know, I'm, you know, I crush at the shooter and now I'm making a shooter and I'm the best, that kind of stuff. And he's not like that at all. Like, he's got a family. He's got, you know, he's got things that he does when he's not at work. But when he's at work, he just wants to make the game. He just wants to make it great. <laughs> like, he really just wants to make designs, see them into the system, test them, figure out how to make them better. And he's very rarely satisfied with the first pass. He's very rarely satisfied with the first idea. Um, like, I think I said this at PSX when we were on stage being interviewed, but um, my job is kind of to be like, what if we did this? Or what if, what about this? And then Kata will go, oh, and I'll be like, you know, we could try this. 
And I'll be like, hmm, I don't know. Why would we do that? That seems really boring. <laughs> like, like, okay, well, what, you know, what would be boring? And he'll be like, I don't know. And then after a little bit, he'll come back with like, what if we tried this? Oh, that's great. Like, that's perfect. It's not exactly what I said, but it's in the vein of solving that problem. But it comes at it from like 60 degrees or 90 degrees off from where I was. And that's exactly where we should be. Like, his perspective is consistently at a completely different angle than I think a lot of other people's, which is what makes his games interesting. It's like you want to get inside his brain. Um, when we were working together in Vancouver, um, he did a t-shirt series called Nice Hair. It was just drawings of white people and their hair. Like It was like a lady with like hair. <laughs> like, a, like a cartoon white lady with like kind of a bouffant hair. And they were just like, I think, inspired by seeing Canadians with their like hair. Like he was just like, wow, look at these people. Like they're styling their hair. And he just thought that was so interesting. And, you know, he, I think it is when you think about it, like, okay, your hair is just dead cells that's growing out of your head. And people spend so much time on it, but it's just like, it's just your hair. <laughs> you know, if, you, if you really think about it, kids don't give a crap about their hair. <laughs> like, no, no. You know, they barely want to brush it, uh, <laughs> let alone wash it. But like when we get older, we become like teenagers, right? We become obsessed with our hair and like the teenage in Katamari with their crazy long, they have these long Elvis rolls that kind of stick out from their foreheads to make these spikes. Like it, it, it is absurd really when you think about it, like the idea of dyeing your hair and hairspray and putting things in your hair you know, piercings and eye makeup and all these things. Like, I mean, I think to Kata, they just seem really bizarre. Um, but you get inculcated in that culture very early on. And like, I love doing my hair. <laughs> I wear makeup and jewelry and earrings and dress up all the time. And I think that for, for him, that's just like, wow. Like, he sees it from a different perspective. He's an outsider. Um, and, I, and I think that that's really valuable because we get kind of lost in our own shit. Mm. I, I, like, what is that kind of like with him being an outside influence, so to speak? Like, like, there's so many, uh, like, there's basically a, cult, a cultural difference in games these days, certainly. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, if you were to say to Kato, like, you know, do you play a lot of video games? He would, he would say no. Um, but if you say, like, okay, well, what, what have you played lately? It would be like, oh, I played Hohokam, or oh, I played this, or oh, I played that. He, he likes to play things that are different. Um, he likes to do things that are different. And I think we have tried really hard at Phenomena to make a safe space for people like that. But yeah, it's not necessarily that way generally in the industry or I mean, even on the internet, right? <laughs> like if you're, if you're different, you know, it's probably not the best thing. Mm. So um, I think it's important to sort of celebrate that and to just be able to make space for different perspectives. It's, it's so important and important for us to innovate the, the medium to get to new places. Um, right, going back to Katamari then, um, trying to uh, sell Katamari Town, let's say, on you get to roll around uh, collecting <laughs> garbage, basically. Yeah. It, it sounds like a simple pitch, but it it really isn't. Like trying, like, trying to convey, like, what makes the game so special, other than you're just going rolling around collecting garbage people etc it's it's very tricky to convey isn't it yeah i think the sense of scale as it changes the way the camera sort of moves through the space when you're rolling the ball the way that you sort of start to get really obsessed with like you'll see a landscape of objects and you'll be like okay i'm about the size of a car tire 
and then you're rolling around in that world and you're like, okay, what do they put out here for me? Like you start, you see the world as a, it's obvious that it's a set and it's supposed to be like, oh, it's a park, you know, and here's the carousel and there's the popcorn guy. And you're like, okay, I can't roll up the popcorn guy yet. I got to get something like around my size. I got to get to the next level before I can get the popcorn guy. So you start seeing the whole world in terms of scale. Um, and it was kind of famous at the time. A lot of people that were into Katamari would would post photos of like seeing the world as if it were a Katamari. So like you're driving your car and you're like, if I just run into that mailbox, then I'll be able to get that other car. You know, <laughs> it, it changes the way that you see the landscape itself, which is um, it's it is hard to convey. I mean, I th- that's just video games in general. I mean, like if you made a video game that's hard to describe then that's good. Like, I mean, how would you describe Minecraft to somebody? Oh, well, <laughs> you wake up in this world and everything's made out of blocks, but it's going to be nighttime soon and zombies are going to come. So you need to dig a hole or make a shelter for yourself. And you do that by punching trees. <laughs> like, it's just, you know, like, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't make sense. But then when you do it, you're like, wow, this is the best thing ever. I'm going to make myself a little shovel and then I'm going to dig down there and find Oh no, zombies! <laughs> you know, it's there's a there's a there's a way of of being and playing when you're playing games that is it is indescribable, but that's what makes them what they are. It's why it's why we make them. At the same time, like playing playing the game, it's like it's it's obviously a massive joy, and I can certainly attest to that playing um, forever on PS3. Mm. But like. What, what what were your kind of first feelings like with the game, especially when playing with such tank controls, basically? You know, I, I remember thinking like, wow, it must have been so hard to get any of this physics to stop from breaking constantly. You know, even at the time, um, I had worked a little bit in environments where you were trying to do sort of more physics simulation. And uh, like with the indie game jams, we'd done a couple of physics-based game jams. Um and, you know, at the time, no one was game jamming. We were the first people to be game jamming. So it seemed like, okay, well, we'll just have, we'll do a physics engine and we'll make games of it. And then we'd be like, oh, my God, physics games are hard, you know? Like, so I, I knew when it came out that, like, it had been probably a big technical challenge for them. But um, for me, it was really intuitive because you could just hit the sticks and move the ball in one direction or in another. It kind of, it just rolled really nicely and it felt like, when you hit something that was too big, it'd bounce back and sometimes you'd lose stuff off the ball and you'd be like, oh, I just worked so hard to get those, you know, paper clips. Now I got to go back and roll them all up. Um, and it, it got to be really immersive very quickly. You know, you, you realized really quickly that like, okay, this is going to be one of those things that like I'm going to want to be able to do a lot. Like I'm going to want to do this activity a lot. As you got bigger and then you could kind of, experiment with rolling up larger objects like let's say you rolled up a big building like a big you know office building with all the faxes and screaming people um it would make you lopsided and then you'd roll crooked and especially with the time component as you got bigger and you rolled up train cars and boats and stuff like that and the ball got all wobbly it was actually pretty hard to 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 sort of force it in the direction that you want it to go in and i can remember thinking like oh you know on the one hand it is really frustrating because it's not an even shape. But on the other hand, wow, that's so cool that they simulated this, that they made it uneven and like actually took the time to design it so that you could finish it, even though you could play with these really lopsided objects. Like that was a deliberate decision and I'm really glad that they stuck with it. Hmm. Um, So just to kind of like touch upon uh, 
a little story, well not so much a little story of my own, but like a kind of my experience playing Katamari forever. So, like, <laughs> so it's it's weird to kind of explain, because like I said, it's kind of hard to explain Katamari in a, in a yeah. way, but, but it's, it's, <laughs> so I've been, I was, I've been playing, like I said, forever for kind of research for this episode, and it's, it's weird how bad shit that game can get at times, especially when I'm playing. Um, so, so Katamari Forever, the, the Cosmos King is basically suffering from amnesia, and, 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 you, and you have to build a mecha uh, Cosmos King, and you'll be doing uh, story stuff for the the mecha king, whereas the unconscious uh, Cosmos King who's suffering from amnesia, you have to do stuff as well. And uh, his levels are all black and white. Because, oh, crazy. And I think most of those levels actually come from uh, Katamari Damase. So, um, oh, that's crazy. I've never played it because, you know, Kate didn't work on anything after we love Katamari. So all the rest of the sequels were, you know, developed and designed inside of Namco. And I think they're... They they may be spiritual successors to the game, but I haven't actually played most of them. Ah, ah, okay. Um, and like earlier earlier today, like as as I'm before recording this episode, like um, I remember having the being tasked with a mission to you know kind of go around collect roll around stuff um, within the game world, and like I was tasked to either get a cow or a I can't remember what's the other <laughs> one, but it was, it was basically to get a cow, essentially, let's say. And within three seconds of starting that level, I basically got the cow, and the mission just stopped. I was like, okay. Yep. And basically, my point is to all of that, and basically my experience to Katamari is, I'm not very good at it, essentially. <laughs> I think actually that I remember that level from, I think it's from We Love Katamari, that particular level and it's an animals level where there are all these different animals and as soon as you pick up the cow the level ends and so what you have to learn to do is to avoid the cow as long as possible and there are several cows in the level so you're trying to roll around and get all these animals but not get a cow Mm. and you want to see how big you can get before you hit a cow Um, Which is, you know, I mean, a lot of the levels in in Katamari and We Love Katamari are about that. They're about sort of taking what would be normal and then turning it on on its head. One of my favorite Katamari levels of all time is actually in We Love Katamari. It's a nighttime level where you're rolling up fireflies. It's just really soft music. And the music is actually kind of a beautiful love song. It's a Japanese love song. Um, And I think the lyrics are something like, you know, like, it's, she's sort of saying, like, you, me, us. But she's, like, saying them in this really breathy voice, and it's, like, kind of a digital song. It's just really lovely, and it's nighttime, and there's these glowing fireflies. And she just rolled the fireflies. It doesn't feel at all like the rest of the game levels. It's a totally different experience, but it really goes so well with the music, and it feels like, it just feels like a really delicious rolling experience, but very different from the other ones you've had, you know? Um I don't know that you, anyone should be good at Katamari. It's, it's kind of like one of those things, like, you're never really good at it. You just enjoy doing it because it's, you know, it's like pogo stick or, I don't know, jump rope. Like, maybe you're good at it, maybe you're not, but it's still fun to do it. Hmm. Hmm. Well, that, that, that still doesn't take away from the fact that I'm still pretty bad at Katamari. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
You mentioned uh, just then the soundtrack, like uh, especially for uh, We Love Katamari Level. Like, just talk in detail, Amos, about your kind of feelings about the soundtrack for uh, Damasai Animas, like how you, your feelings developed for that, basically. Well, I actually I fell in love with it immediately. Um, I loved the soundtrack, and then eventually I bought it, um, the Japanese soundtrack for Katamari. Um, I bought the CD, and then I got the MP3s, and I put them on my computer, and I had them all the time. I had a Katamari ringtone. Um, I just became obsessed with the music. And actually, when I moved out here to San Francisco, um, they had released the music for We Love Katamari, and the CD came out with a um, came out with a sticker under the label. So you could take it out, and it was like all these weird little stickers. Um, and I remember just being so excited to get it. I was actually driving in my car, which had a CD player in it, and listening to that CD. Um, and the uh, the Cosmos music was on. I was actually looking for an apartment. I was driving up this hill in San Francisco, and the you know the universe theme came on, which is like wah wah wah, like this crazy music. I was going up the hill, and it, I realized I was going up this hill. It was just really big. It was such a tall hill. I was driving way up to the top of Twin Peaks, which is the tallest place in the city. And as I crested the hill, I saw this building in front of me, which is this bright pink house. And I was like, holy crap. And that was the place that I was there to see. <laughs> as soon as I saw it and I heard the Katamari music, I was like, well, I guess this is where I'm going to live. <laughs> it totally ended up being my house. So I moved into the apartment there. And every time I would drive home, I'd be like, eh, I am going to the Katamari house. <laughs> just felt like it was ordained, you know, and I have a Katamari license plate on my car. It's K-A-T-A-M-R-1. The very first car I ever bought was a Saab and it had a Katamari license plate. Um, I also have a little tiny mushroom hanging from the window of, or the rearview mirror of my car, <coughs> which is, um, it's an amigurumi mushroom. It, I got, I bought it in Japan. It used to be rainbow, but it's long since faded to like a kind of a soft brown um, because in the first game there's this crazy mushroom that you can go to in the universe menu and all the unique little Katamari brothers and sisters like hang out on it, all the other cousins of the prince. Um, and sometimes I'll be driving Kate around in my car and I just think it's so, so crazy. Like I'm driving Kate around in my car. It has a Katamari license plate and a mushroom hanging from the rearview mirror. And he's just sitting in it like no big deal, no big whoop. I think one of the interesting things about the music, which I don't think a lot of people know, is that Kata's wife actually made it. So they met while they were working on Katamari. Oh. Yeah, she's the composer. Oscar. Oh. Yeah, she's really great. Oh. Oh. Super talented. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you kind of mentioned that kind of fangirlish nature there. Does, does Kata not kind of go, be a little bit awkward around that? <laughs> well, we've been friends long enough now that it's sort of... It's mellowed out, I think. Um, but I think he thinks I'm a bit weird. Yeah, I would say. <laughs> I mean, like most people, um, I think Kata has, he's like, you know, I mean, I think he thinks we're all a little weird. Um, his nickname for me is Noisy, because I talk so much. <laughs> oh, <dear. laughs> but I think also, um, I've worked really hard to help Kata, like when we first met, he had just finished Katamari and was working on the second one. And he was really tired of it. He wanted to move on to another game idea. And he sort of told me about Nobi Boy, which is the game he was going to work on next. Mm. And, uh, you know, he was just working at Namco like anybody ever, you know, anybody else. Just a, just another artist. He was actually working in the art department and then came up with the idea for Katamari. 
and uh, wanted to pitch it and made an animatic for it, and then it got greenlit. It was sort of a weird process by which it ended up getting made. Um, and he was as surprised as anybody, I think, that it was popular. Um, but he wasn't really doing that well. Like, you know, if you work in Japan as a game developer, especially at that time, like, it wasn't a really sane job. It was kind of thankless and hard. You work long hours, you don't get paid a lot. I remember having a conversation with him and realizing that, like, at my first job on The Sims, that I was getting paid maybe as much or possibly even a little more than he was at Namco, even though he was, like, this amazing game designer and I was just really junior. And I thought that was so unfair. And over the years, um, as we sort of stayed in touch and then became friends and then started working together and then eventually I started Phenomena, like, my whole goal has been to kind of give back, I think, in a way, like, to make to make the company be a place where a kid can work and do the things he wants to do. Like I got him a visa so he could move to the States and, you know, raise a family here. And, you know, I work really hard to provide an environment for him to be creative and get paid a living wage that he can use to support his family. And hopefully when, you know, when we release our, our game, you know, it'll do really well and he'll make enough money that he can just kind of relax a little bit. I think it's, it's hard to be an artist, especially if you work for big corporations because, you know, they own your ideas mm. and that's, that's who you are. It's all the money you can make is your ideas, you know? And I think in a way, you know, he inspired me to become more of the game developer that I wanted to become to, to, you know, take the risk. And I guess I want to, I want to, pay that back in a way I want to pay it forward I guess not just to Kata but to all the people that come to Phenomena so in a way it's kind of like it's it's like it started off as as being inspired by the game but then in general just inspired by his courage I guess and his his willingness to just try whatever seems right to him you know which is it's actually a lot harder than it looks hmm. you know it's it's really risky <laughs> to to go to your boss and be like I want to make a game about rolling stuff up or I have a new idea now, and it's about stretching this long boy. <laughs> I, mean, I call him Noby Boy, but he's kind of like a penis-shaped thing that you stretch. I mean, like, just like, you know, I mean, that's a very, very, it's a very daring thing to just fly in the face of, like you were saying, you know, a sea of brown or blue and orange shooters. Mm. Um, so, kind of to go back then to um, Katamari, um, characters, like, there's obviously the cosmos, the king of cosmos, the prince of cosmos. Like, like, what? Like, talk of your feelings with that with them kind of characters. Then, hmm. well, I mean, the king, the king is really funny because he has this ridiculous face, um, these huge lips, and like a hairy chest, and also he's wearing like a crazy neck thing, like this, like Edward, like sort of Edwardian, you know, Victorian neck ruff, um, and then um, he has. A giant gold belt with, I think it's like the logo on the belt is maybe it's like a bear, but then he just has a giant package. Like he's wearing tights and he's just stuffed into those tights. Like he is a big old lump <laughs> right there. And it's like, first of all, that's like, you just see that. You're like, okay, he's like a really weird looking dude with like this kind of gold chain and a hairy chest and a gold belt and then a big package. <laughs> like it's a ridiculous caricature of masculinity. Um, so that's really funny. And immediately you're like, okay, well, clearly 
it's we're not going to have to take this guy too seriously because he's he's just like this weird disco king, like silly, <laughs> um, really nuts. <laughs> and then you know the 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 the, the prince uh, Oji and the and all the cousins are so cute. Like he has this crazy like oblong head. And the little dee 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 dee, he's got a little antenna on top that like he uses to connect to the mothership of space. And he's just like a little green, cute little green dude. Um, and then all the cousins are just like adorable variations on that same thing. So it's sort of one of Kata's themes or modes is like he creates an object and then he makes multiple variations on that thing. He applies that same format to objects over and over so like for the cousins there's like there's like a rasta cousin that's like just rasta colors and then there's like a strawberry cousin that has like strawberry seeds on its body and like a long round strawberry head and i think the the design of all the little cousins and the prince is super compelling to me in fact kata started releasing wallpapers online um of the characters and of all the cousins and he even did like a really cool hand-drawn screens sort of like background wallpaper of um the prince rolling up a bunch of pencils on a ball and across the page and then down to the bottom corner and had all these pencils and stuff and uh i remember printing my own bootleg gatamaray t-shirts using the wallpapers because i thought they were so cool um i just loved the character designs and the way that they looked and they were so cute you know so chibi and like um I had been buying, you know, stuffed animals and stuff when I go to Japan. Like, I, I would buy um, Sanrio plushies, you know, like, I don't know if you're familiar with the Nyako Burger, cats and fries, or cats and a hamburger, or cats and a burrito. There's, like, stuff like that that they make over there that's super, super cool. And you couldn't get that stuff here in the States. And so I would, whenever I was in Japan, I would always try and, you know, pick up a couple of, like, small cute plushies and I can just remember thinking to myself if I ever got a prince plushie that would just I would just die of happiness because they were so cute um and then ironically after Kata came to the states to go to GDC after he'd released Katamari and he won the game design award he for my birthday he gave me a prince a plush prince puppet which is sitting on my desk at my office right now like I can see it from here <laughs> And um, he also gave me many years later a terry cloth Nobi boy, which is here at the at the office as well. So he understands my weakness, I guess, for cute plushies. <laughs> <laughs> um, there, there's actually one more card I kind of want to mention um, that's tied into as well uh, me playing uh, Katamari Forever, and that's the Jumble Brother, or or in Katamari Forever, the Jumble Brothers, because in Katamari Forever there's these kind of TV shows, so to speak, featuring the Jumble Brothers and the Queen, and the, and the Queen's one is called the Queen's Diary. But I love, love the Jumble Brothers one because it's it's so hilarious in its own cookie Katamari way. It's just, what is it? I don't I don't know it. I can't I can't quite um, remember from the top of my head. But it, like I said, it's just though it's just a, car- a cartoon caricature, so to speak, and oh, it's. It's it's kind of hard to describe all of that, <laughs> but it's so it's so fun. It's 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 funny. It's like they're all going about doing superhero type things that they're basically known for, essentially, so to speak. So mm-hmm. it's it's kind of hard to um, it's kind of hard to describe, but it's brilliant. 
Um, I would suggest YouTube and Katamari Forever Jumbo Brothers cartoon. I will uh, totally look up the Jumbo Brothers. <laughs> it's, it's it's brilliant. I loved it. I loved it, those cartoons, and I'm still playing Katamari Forever right now, actually. So I'll probably find. You're making lot. me want to pick it up. I wonder if it's any good. Like I, I got really since I was a purist. You know, since I knew that Kata was working on. Um, Noby Boy during the time that a lot of those games were made, I kind of was like, eh, I'm going to wait to play Noby Boy. I won't play these other games, but I should go back and play them. Some of his friends worked on them, I'm sure. Hmm. Um, well, like I said, it's 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 definitely, as a cartoon, it's definitely worth checking out, so to speak. <laughs> um, what else did you like about Katamari uh, that we've not touched upon tonight? I just think that, honestly, that the, the sort of the the ability to sort of look at the world from that different perspective starting small and getting big that's just like it was so influential to me um you know probably beyond what i've really really been able to even communicate in the interview like it's just it's so and it was so joyful like you said it's so rare for us to make games that celebrate life and are silly and funny and unique um you can count them kind of on one hand Usually, you know those kinds of games, and like I think actually the Double Fine kids over there, they do they do a good job of making games that are silly, but you know, pointing at the same time. But there really aren't a lot of people anymore that make make those kinds of games, and I think it's important that we not lose it. We shouldn't secede all the territory of games to to violence and winning, you know, triumph and victory and exercising your power. You know, it's uh, it's good to make games about. About just rolling. <laughs> <laughs> um, this may be a difficult qu- uh, question to answer, considering your kind of fangirl nature and the fact you work with Kata. But like, mm-hmm. what didn't you like about it? I would say that it was actually the um, the controls at times were frustrating when you got really big, and like I like I said, it was frustrating, but it was also rewarding when you solve the puzzles. I hated the klaxon sound. I hated the sound that they make when you are losing and you're going to run out of time. It goes like, it's like really terrible sound. And I actually, I bugged him about it at one point. I was like, why on earth did you pick that sound? And he was like, you need to relax. <laughs> that was his answer. <laughs> you need to do yoga. I was like, oh man, I just hate it. It's so stressful. And I think for him, having to put a timer in it all, probably he just picked the worst possible sound, hoping that they'd take it out. <laughs> It was kind of a passive-aggressive move on his part, probably, my guess, but I really hate that sound. <laughs> um, so, what, if if you were designing the game, like, what would you change in the game as a designer, then? Or what would you tweak, at least? Um, let's see. I probably would have made some of the levels a little bit less timed. Like, I would have given you a little bit more time. I would, if I were working on it, I would have given them another six months to like uh, just polish all the physics so that there'd be no physics bugs. Uh, probably would have worked a little bit on the see-through component. Like when you roll in front of something very big, there's like a little hole that you can see through it. And that didn't always work, like just as a, as a mechanism for kind of figuring out where you were. It was sometimes hard to get the camera into the right position and stuff like that. Uh, and just help them optimize the frame rate, you know. There are times when the game gets slow because there's just a lot of objects being simulated at once. But, you know, they were really pushing it, so. And and take out the klaxon? Yeah, definitely take out the klaxon. Ugh. <laughs> so bad. <laughs> um, so uh, I typically ask what people's top three games in that series are, but as you said, you've only played um, Donna Say and we love Katamari, so I won't, I won't ask that, but I will ask... Yeah. Um, I will ask... 
what is the legacy for Katamari Damacy? At least for, for you, anyways, like how do you see the, the legacy for the game going forward? Well, I mean, one of the things that's really cool is that it's actually been acquired by the Museum of Modern Art in New York City, so it's in the MoMA now, and it's part of the permanent collection. Um, uh, Paola Antonelli, who runs the design collection at MoMA, really believes that games should be considered part of the collection, that she thinks that game design is design, just like, you know, seeing an Ames chair or whatever. Um, and so she uh, she was worked really hard to sort of promote that idea and built out the collection so far. Um, uh, Katamari is in the collection and actually so is Flower which is really great so I think that Katamari's legacy is that it it stands as an example of sort of playfulness and in fact um, they had an exhibit there a couple years ago about just the um, the era of childhood and that the last hundred years or so the century of childhood where because of the industrial revolution and changes in our culture like kids get to be kids for a lot longer than they used to and uh, Katamari was featured in that exhibit because it sort of it celebrates childhood. Um, it was even actually inspired by uh, a classroom exercise that kids in Japan will do, where they have to roll an actual giant ball around, like a kind of like an Earth ball, um, as part of a you know an exercise regime. And so, I think that it it's it's inspired people to be open to the idea of childish games and you know other games that Kata has made have done the same thing not just Nobi Boy but even Tiny Wanya Teens we were we were recently at PAX and um, our friend uh, our friend there has made a game called Butt Sniffin Pugs and uh, it was pretty it's pretty silly and he came over and was talking to us and uh, it turns out that Tiny Wanya Teens was an inspiration for him he saw that game and was like I'm going to make a crazy game too and he made, to, he made this Butt Stiff and Pugs game, and it's actually done really well. They've had a great festival run, and uh, both, both actually both Butt Sniff and Pugs and um, Watam, which is the game we're working on now, were featured in a PewDiePie episode <laughs> after PAX. So that was like, you know, everyone was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you're on his show. So, <laughs> so that's Kate's legacy is Butt Sniff and Pugs. I guess that's what I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> Honorable mentions for my favorite game. Well, Mule, definitely. And, well, I really, really loved XCOM, the original XCOM, UFO Defense. It was super, super, super compelling to me, and I, I played it all the way through twice on the PlayStation, which was really hard to do, but I loved it. And The Sims, <laughs> which and, and I, I just played so much Sims, oh my god, I can't even tell you how much Sims I've played. Oh, well... Like, considering the person we had on talking about The Sims 2 earlier in the season, I think it'd be... Like, how, how, how much have you played at The Sims, like, at that time? Can you... Oh, my gosh. Like, when I was working on The Sims, I would play it even when I went home. After work, I would still play it. Like, just to see what I could get out of the system, especially once I knew how it worked. Like, once I was exposed to The Sims, the, to Edith, the editor, and, like, I could go in and do my own things, I would stay late. I would find myself sitting at my desk at 10.30 at night after working a full day, still playing. <laughs> it was just really... I have to not play it, you know, because if I, if, I, if I have it on my PC, I'll just play it. Just, just nonstop playing. Yeah, I love it. It's have, so 
Have you played like Sims 4 yet at all? No. <laughs> I'm the- running a company, man. <laughs> I'm trying, <laughs> trying to keep myself together. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair, Fair enough. Um, so... Top three games ever, what would they be? Obviously, Catamaran at the top, but how would you like rate the rest of the three? Oh, wow, top three. Wow, that's so hard. Um, man, I really, really loved Rock Band, so I would probably say Katamari, Rock Band, and then... Man, that's really hard. It would be a, sort of almost like a dead heat between SimCity and The Sims, probably. Like, yeah, because they're both they're both really cool, but just for really different ways. I'm a builder, so I love building. So when I play The Sims, I actually just I spend a lot of time in in building mode. If I played you know enough Minecraft, I'd probably slip that one in that last slot too. But I haven't played that much of it because again, it came out when I had a real job <laughs> needed to, and wasn't just a game designer anymore and needed to like actually get up in the morning and not sleep late. But um, but yeah, I was never really that big into MMOs or you know, sports games, and I've never been a shooter fan, really. Like, I can play them, but um, they're, they're not my thing. And I, you know, a, a really close fourth would probably be, and this is going to sound crazy, but um, I loved Fatal Frame. <laughs> I thought it was just a really good horror game. It was really scary and creepy. Oh, like, are you much of a horror person at all, besides um, Fatal Frame? I played, I played a bunch when I was younger. Like, I don't, I don't play as many horror games now because they've gotten so gruesome. But back at that time when, you know, Resident Evil and Fatal Frame and, um, uh, oh gosh, I'm going to, Silent Hill, when those games came out, you know, um, I was really into them. Ah, so definitely no PT at all? No, 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 I no. haven't. Good, yeah. good. That's, yeah. pro- that's probably wise, considering... <laughs> Like, you know, don't, yeah, just don't, just don't. Worry. I'm sensitive, so, you know, a little scary is way scary for me. Like, I saw Ringu in the theater, and I just couldn't go, I couldn't look at the television for, like, three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> I get really scared. Like, some, someone showed me a video, like, a short video on the internet not too long ago that is about when you turn the lights off, and then you turn them on, and then there's this, like, creepy thing that gets closer and closer as a, this person's trying to get in bed and keep the lights on. And I just, it still freaks me out. Like, I still think about it when I shut myself out of bed. Keep thinking of that thing coming on out of the nowhere. So, yeah, I'm really, I'm very impressionable that way. Well, if you get any nightmares that are related to that, you can perfectly blame me. <laughs> I will.
let's touch upon Watham then. And, like, I was immediately impressed when you guys first announced it uh, at PSX last year. It was it was weird and kooky, like Katamari, <laughs> basically. Um, yeah. And then the gameplay reveal before E3 this year, and just revisiting it earlier tonight before we started recording here, just, you could not wipe the smile off my face. <laughs> it was just wonderful. Um, so, for... Basically, those who haven't seen Watam yet, like, just basically give the elevator pitch and how it came about. Well, so in Watam, there is the, the queen, who is the Earth, and there is a horrible monster in space that's a bad guy, and they have a fight. And as a result of the fight, the queen has to self-destruct. So she takes her crown off, and there's a bomb under there, and she blows herself up, and all the pieces of Earth are sort of shattered to the four corners of the universe. And then you go down to the last little piece of Earth, which is a little square. And on that square asleep is another square. And that square is the mayor of the planet Earth. And the mayor doesn't remember all these horrible events because it was a baby when they happened. And so it's grown up alone on this little planet. And it wakes up alone. And your job is to help the mayor find all the other characters that are on that little square of Earth. Because it doesn't want to be alone. And then when you wake up those characters, the mayor also has the special ability, which is the bomb, under his hat. And you can make friends with the mayor by holding hands or stacking together. And once you've made a stack of a certain number of people, the mayor can take his hat off and blow them up sky high. And that that explosion is so joyful and fun that other pieces of the Earth that are out in space hear it and come down to play. So basically, your job is to make friends and then explode them for joyful results, which will attract, almost like a flare or a beacon, more friends from outer space. And so the level is actually being composed from pieces of the Earth that fly in over time as you play. So it kind of builds itself out as you play. And then every character that you unlock has a special ability, like... Uh, if you're the cloud and you press the triangle button, the cloud will rain. You can use the rain to wake up little flower sprouts which are hiding in the grass. If you are the lawnmower, you can press the triangle and mow all the grass. You can also mow flowers and mow other people that are in the world. Um, but then if you mow all the grass on one of the levels, then you get a little tiny baby lawnmower. <laughs> so stuff like that. So the game is really about um, – it's kind of trying to be – in between the sort of timed and really structured gameplay in Katamari and the super open-ended physics gameplay of Nobi Boy. So we're trying to kind of be a little bit more directed than Nobi Boy, but a little bit more open-ended than Katamari. And that's because I like to play stories and like to play through on the, the line of the missions. And Kata likes to just play wild, crazy physics way. So he likes to just exploit the physics and do crazy stuff with the characters. So the game is actually really about building physical shapes with these characters and collaborating together to make the biggest explosions you can. Hmm. So basically, in a sense, it's basically like building relationships, relationships, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's a, it's very similar in the themes of Katamari in that, you know, Kata sort of says that, you know, if we were all the same shaped, the world would be pretty boring, but it would be a lot easier for us to collaborate and get along. And so the game is kind of built with all these crazily shaped different characters that are all physically simulating so that you have to work to really get them to hold together. And that that kind of is a metaphor for celebrating our differences and getting over our differences so that we can work together and make the world a more joyful place. Hmm. Um, it's it's clear. Like I said this uh, uh, earlier, look, but what I'm like seeing, it just could not wipe the smile off my face off it. And it's just 
like we mentioned this about Katamari earlier, but it's, ha- but it's worth mentioning with Watam as well. Like there's such a happy-go nature to it as well, and why we're, we've not seen a lot more games like like Katamari or Watam. Uh, like is that is that the first attempt fr- from you and Kate to just kind of rectify that, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's it's in our nature, and especially in Kate's nature, to design things that are not serious. And when you go not serious, it's just you end up kind of in the place of childhood and play and exploration and fun. And the more we've worked on it, the more we've found, especially when we, like when we were at PAX, we had so many people come by, couples and like kids and parents. Um, the game is two-player right now, so you can play with two people collaboratively all, all the way through. And it's just really fun to like sit down next to someone on the couch and like see what happens. And we both believe that, you know, playing like that, exploratory play, open-ended play, curiosity, these are just values that we share. Like, we just think they're good to, they're good to practice. And I think we should be making games that celebrate that in addition to the other things we talked about earlier, like, you know, winning and getting revenge, which tend to be the things that we focus on in games. Mm, like I said, human nature. Yeah. With, with um, what, what is your aim with Watam? What is Kata's uh, aim with Watam? Or even, so to speak, what is the aim f- for Phonomena with Watam? And what is your hope that players will take away with Watam? I think we really want to build a game that celebrates collaboration mm-hmm. and celebrates togetherness, you know, in its experience all the way through, from the mechanics of the game all the way to the experience on the couch. And I think we want people to be able to feel free to explore and kind of express themselves through the choices they make while playing um, and not just feel like they have to grind for points or, you know, to unlock stuff. Um, Overall, our goal is to make games that bring people closer together and also promote, you know, just spending time together in a meaningful way. Um, it's, It's, there's so much to do in the world and so many things to see and now everyone has a phone and there's people texting you and you know you're never away from your job and you know it's just busy 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 and we would like people to slow down a little bit i mean we do make video games so you know there is that but like maybe we can make games that celebrate um just kind of taking it a little bit easier Mm. um so when can we expect to see what time obviously sometime next year i would assume um, actually, we haven't announced it. Um, maybe at the end of next year, or maybe a little bit after. It really depends on when it's done. Ah. <laughs> we'll, we're gonna we're gonna keep working on until on it until we love it. <laughs> ah, fair enough. So basically, the kind of blizzard credo of when it's done, basically. Well, let's hope so. Yeah. <laughs>
In addition to Watam, we're also making a game here called Luna, which is a lot more like Journey in that it's a lot more about narrative and exploring the space of gameplay in a different way. And I think we haven't really said that much about it in public. I've just been doing small embargoed interviews with press, actually showing the game to people. But I want people to understand that like, as a studio and as a group of people, we are actually on both ends of the spectrum. We're actually trying to make joyful, fun, collaborative games that really do help you release tension and explore and hang out with friends and family, kind of like a Saturday morning cartoon. But we're also working on a really beautiful, subtle, emotional fairy tale (laughs) that's more like a bedtime story. And so the company itself has a lot to offer. The games that we're making are for people who love games and love play, love stories and love exploring, love being in a different place. And I think, you know, if anything, um, what we need right now is we need people to just know that we're out there. So if you're listening, follow us on Facebook and Twitter and uh, let us know that you're following us. Tweet at us and, and just give us the encouragement because it's it's hard to be a little boat in a big ocean and sometimes we feel a little bit lost. So your encouragement makes a big difference. Thanks for listening to my favourite game. Next week, the second part of our season finale, Sam Barlow on a mind forever voyaging. Until next week, bye bye.